continue in our study this morning. First Peter chapter 3, we will start from verse 13 and read through verse 17. So 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Please follow along as, I'll read, as I read. But who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So most of you uh, apologist buffs will recognize this passage. It's probably one of your favorites found in 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That verse right there is seen as the bedrock, really as the foundation of Christian apologetics. And I would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. I would also say it is really the the center point, the, the, the focal point of this entire passage. It represents the uh, the primary theme. And so while we want to talk about the importance of apologetics and its platform and its supporting and accompanying verses, and we will, we also have to consider the context and setting that it is in. It's in the setting of persecution, of Peter encouraging these persecuted, marginalized Christians to be ready and to have a response. And so really, it stands to reason that the theme of this passage is hope, and we will take two, maybe three Sundays to go through this passage. There's a lot of good stuff in it, especially in terms of application. I want you guys to be uh, prepared apologists, ready to stand on the truth of the gospel upon which our entire hope is anchored. And I would say that Jeremy has been doing a great thorough job uh, going through that at Sunday schools, especially in light of the book we've been going through. But really what he's been going through is really the, uh, the expansion of what we find in verse 15. So we're going to take our time going through a very important passage, the one here before us, uh, to have a good understanding and a good application of it, because often passages like this, which as precious as they are, can often be yanked from their context and, and applied wrongly, and we simply don't want to do that. We want to understand in its context and its application and all that... Uh, this passage provides for us. But the initial context is suffering, suffering for doing the good, suffering for standing firm on the gospel. And this is the thing that is most worthy of suffering. It is most worthy of the displeasure of an unbelieving world. So we have to keep that in mind going forward. But the theme of this text is titled, Unassailable Hope in Unavoidable suffering. So let me read that again. Unassailable hope in unavoidable suffering. And simply, we're just going to go through this passage. Now, mind you, the way in which the text connects all together, we will be going down to verse 17. So today, Lord willing, we'll try to cover uh, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 17, because as you'll notice, uh, verse 14 is connected with verse 17 in regards to the reason that we are suffering. 
But there is a right way to suffer, and there is a wrong way to suffer. And within that, Peter is able to encourage uh, these dear and faithful believers. And of course, this is a passage that carries with it, as many other passages in 1 Peter regarding suffering, a lot of encouragement that those who follow Christ and suffer for it, even if the suffering is for, for the time being more marginalization, more rejection. I mean, we, we can see that today. We would, today we would call that canceling, right? You stand for the truth, you get canceled. So we aren't seeing severe persecution just yet. However, there is an opportunity, even in not so severe times of persecution, that is a refining period for believers. It reminds them of what matters the most. It reminds them of how precious Christ is. It reminds them of the realness, the genuineness of their faith. So even light and momentary affliction serves a purpose in that regard. It tests our faith. All forms of affliction do. And we find that walking with Christ, being faithful, is not an easy task. We've mentioned many times before, but the Christian life is not something that we see as on autopilot. We're not just kicking back, enjoying the ride. No, we have the hand of the plow. We are, we are working. We are working under the power of the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ, all that his grace supplies, but we are still working. We are still striving. We are still pursuing things that are characteristic of Christian growth things that are characteristic of a holy and devoted life to Jesus Christ and his gospel. And what suffering does ultimately is it proves that Jesus Christ is faithful to bring us through trials of all different kinds, whether light and momentary or prolonged and severe. We can echo what Job said, when I am tried, I shall come forth as gold. And so this same line of thinking will be evident in times like these, whether it be first century Roman Empire, where much societal marginalization is occurring, or even in our own society today, where increasingly there is, to that degree, um, opposition toward the gospel, really opposition against anything that says this is true or that is true that goes against the mainstream, that goes against the mob. I was reminded this week to simply, for something simply to be made, the point to be made, uh, especially when a politician is, is speaking, is this. If you want to make your point, you just say, the vast majority agrees. And then suddenly that gives credence or authority to your point, right? And we can tend to unfortunately fade into that. We can buy that as an actual grounds for proving something or demonstrating that something is true. It's mob mentality. We don't agree things are true because the consensus, there's another hot word, because the consensus abides by it or because the vast majority abides by it. No way. We, we abide by what God's word says is true. That is our foundation. That is our authority. No matter how many people say otherwise, you could stand alone like Athanasius did and you wouldn't be wrong. Why? Because regardless of what the vast majority thinks or asserts or demands that you believe, its assertions crumble before the power of God's word. And yet that is something that in your life in Christ will be proven and will often be proven, that conviction that is, will be proven through suffering. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn from a text like this. There's a lot 
that we can relate to uh, regarding the people to whom uh, Peter is penning this letter. So a lot in this passage. So let's look at what he says. Verse 13. And remember, we just got done listening to Peter exhort these people, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, but to give a blessing, right? We are to persevere in righteousness. We are to persevere in what is good. So in verse 13, he asks this, as if to continue his point, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now remember, that's going to be our first theme that we attack here in this text regarding unassailable hope. Now remember, hope is something that is always important for us to define. As you know, every time we've encountered hope in this book, what do we do? We define our terms because we never want to relegate hope to a fool's hope or a worldly hope or a, or a, or a passing hope, something that is temporary or of this world. Hope is not wishful thinking, right? Hope is the eager anticipation. I'm going to drill this in your heads until you get it. Hope is the eager anticipation and expectation of the fulfillment of all that God has promised us in Christ. So that's not wishing. This is truth. This is believing the promises of God and founded upon a guarantee of future inheritance that Peter talks about in the very opening of this letter. So there's a difference between wishing with some doubt that something is true and believing it so much that you're simply sitting there while at work expecting it to come to pass. Those are two very different mindsets. I would say they're even an eternity apart. But such is the hope that we have. And let me remind you of something too, very important within the scope of the book of 1 Peter. The hope in question here goes beyond nearly the scope of personal salvation and our pending glorification. Peter, if nothing else, writes in a very corporate fashion. He writes to a plural, to a people, to the body of Christ, to that holy house, remember? The holy priesthood, the chosen race, right? The true people of God. So we have to, as a local church, to agree with these things as a body, to not resort to some private, isolated piety when it comes to obeying and following these things, but to remember that in obeying them, in persevering, in hoping, we do these things together as the people of Christ, as the body of the Lord Jesus. So this hope goes beyond the personal salvation, goes beyond glorification, even though those things are included. This hope that we have in mind, and I believe Peter strongly supports this, this hope is to see the glory of God fill the earth. It is to see the earth filled with the knowledge of the Lord. It is to see his reign consummated. It is to see the kings of the earth cast their crowns before Jesus and bow their knee. It is to see the rebel tremble in fear for rejecting the gospel of Christ. So see, this goes beyond the individual stuff. This is a worldwide corporate ongoing event. And we as the church are watching it happen. We're watching it play out. And we are participating in all of these glorious realities, glorious and inevitable realities as we preach the gospel, as we give the good news of the kingdom. It is also this hope to see justice and righteousness prevail and the word of God to be the only law and standard that matters, that is worthy of our consideration. So I say this to encourage you of what is at stake here, that these promises of God that we anticipate 
are so far-reaching. They are universal, and they bring everything under the authority and purview of Christ, without exception. That's what makes the gospel such a pressing message, such a, a pressing message is because that it is an inescapable truth that affects, impacts everything that we say, do, and think, especially as the people of God. And everyone is called to repent and obey this gospel. And so this is an especially helpful word for those readers who are well into a phase of, a, of affliction. And so we say that the greatest encouragement in facing unavoidable suffering is to have a hope that is unassailable. You notice these people aren't running. They're standing their ground. They're being faithful. They're assembling together. They're hearing the word. They're proclaiming the word. And to do that in suffering, you must have hope, a hope that is unassailable, a hope that cannot be crushed or overcome. And so what are the characteristics of this? So back to the text. First is this, characteristic number one, because I think Peter really is asking a rhetorical question. So it is this, unassailable hope in the midst of suffering pursues that which is good, or unassailable hope pursues that which is good in suffering. Okay, so let's look at the text again. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, obviously, we look at this text and say, okay, Peter is asking a rhetorical question. Why? Because the Christians to whom he is writing are undergoing harm. They are being harmed. Perhaps not as much bodily, but as, we, as we've mentioned, when it comes to their function in society, they are being rejected. They are being marginalized. They are being pointed out as, as those who are not part of the club. Perhaps those who are not part of the majority. They serve a different Lord. They worship a different God. And this word harm has a moral weight to it. We've run across it before, even in 1 Peter. When it says harm, it speaks of general evil. Who is there to do general evil to you? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So this is general badness, general evil, wickedness in the eye of God, away from which Peter continues to warn us to stay. Stay away from it. If you look back at... If you look in verse 13, this also refers to this, this reprehensible sort of harm and, and evil doing that is aimed particularly at the believer, in which pain or damage is inflicted. So this is real harm here. Now keep in mind, in the eyes of God, okay, we could say even in the eyes of the church, but especially in the eyes of God, how the believer is conducting himself here, how the church is conducting herself here is in accordance with the word of God. So this is not bad in, a, in an undefined sense. This is evil in the sense in which personal conduct and morality contradicts scripture. It is against God. It is a rebellious kind of wickedness. So that is to say is that when the saints here do what is good, they are acting in such a way in which they do not deserve this kind of affliction. It is not affliction that is earned because Peter's just warned them, what, what does it profit you if you do evil and you suffer for it? There are particular laws in view, especially those laws that are consistent with God's revealed word. You defy those things, you are going to get punished. It is the duty of the magistrate or whatever ruler is in place 
to bring retribution upon those who do evil. So he says, don't suffer for evil doing. But in this case, they are doing what is good and they are suffering anyway, even though this suffering has not yet reached fever pitch. But this is the situation. I think we find ourselves in a similar situation, regardless of how optimistic and fired up we are about the inevitable conquering work of the proclamation of the gospel. Just throw that in there. The marginalization is real. The rejection of the gospel among unbelieving society is palpable. It is noisy. It is loud. It is very deliberate. You could say that in some sense, we are closer and closer as followers of Jesus Christ to being in the crosshairs in whatever sense that manifests itself. Well, those to whom Peter is writing are enduring a very similar thing. The peculiarities of their faith in Christ involve rejection of the pagan decadence of the Roman Empire. See, that pagan decadence, the paganism was was ingrained in society. If you were a true Roman, you were pagan. Just as if, same side, you are a true Christian, guess what? Forsaking all others, you follow Jesus Christ. You believe in him and you obey him. And there's no room for anything in between. And so what the Christian did at this time, were they faithful, is that they maintained that there was no Lord and no Savior but Jesus. Just like Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by whom we must be saved. Okay. That was originally a Roman saying referring to Caesar Augustus. And for a Christian to come and say that was a voluntary clear rejection of the lordship of Caesar. And as time went on at various points in the Roman Empire, the, uh, the deification of Caesar became more and more defined, became more and more clear to the sense that to reject him was to reject him not only as ruler, but to reject him as God. And so you can't serve two masters, right? If you're going to serve Jesus Christ, you're not going to accept Caesar as your Lord. You're going to say, no, Jesus is Lord even of Caesar. So, of course, you can see the, uh, the, the way in which they part here. The Christian can have nothing to do with any expression of unbelief in society. That was true in the time of Israel. It was true in the time of the first century Roman Empire. It remains true today. But the believer is to have nothing to do with the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So every year when you were commanded in the first century and then on to pinch that little thing of incense and offer it up to Caesar and declare that he was Lord and then go on your merry way and serve Jesus. And you said, no, that by default was a testimony that Caesar fell under the authority of Jesus. If you wouldn't pinch that incense, just that little compromise, one day a year, it took a few seconds. And so many Christians were saying, no, no, because that undoes the gospel. That is contradictory. Jesus is Lord and there is no one else. So that's, that's just one issue. And then you have the lifestyle itself. If you are a Christian and yet perhaps have a Roman background, you're the one who's weird. You're the weirdo who's saying, no, I will not do this. I will not go to a temple prostitute. I will not sacrifice to idols. Won't offer, don't, won't offer a pinch of incense to Caesar. I will not celebrate your festivals. I will not live like an unbeliever. I am in Christ now. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. And I will only do the things 
that are befitting to faith and trust and obedience to Him. See, that's what we call being a new man in Christ, because the old man has been crucified. And to do that is to say that I live for Christ, and it is better to obey Him than to obey man in spite of what the consequences are upon me. See, this is living a sanctified life. This is living a holy life before God, even though the consequences can be abundant. And this kind of allegiance, this kind of wholehearted faith in Christ is something that is rather offensive to unbelieving society because in our faith in Christ, we are continually exposing the wickedness and unbelief. Yes, I know it's popular to be tolerant. I know it's popular to be open-minded. We can say these things again and again and again. Why are we so mean-spirited? Why aren't we more loving? Okay. And as we say every time, the most loving thing we can do is tell the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes the truth says, hey, you're wrong. And being wrong has eternal consequences. We must tell the truth. And that is in the very fabric of what it means to be zealous for what is good. Looking again at verse 13. What harm is there in that ultimately? And I think answering this question, this, this thing of harm, can be, can be understood in a couple of contexts. For one, as believers, we are to basically bear the, the fragrant aroma of life wherever we go. We recognize the majority of, of unbelievers, you know, they, they, they do not understand because what we believe is spiritually discerned. Scripture tells us that very clearly. However, there should be a, a winsomeness in the life of the believer that wins over even unbelievers and to the point in which even the unbeliever is aware of, of the grace and the humility and the goodness of the believer. In Proverbs 16:7, we read an example of this. When a person's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he causes even his enemies to make peace with him. So what I want to be careful not to say is, is that if you walk with Christ, that every unbeliever is going to hate your guts and want to kill you. That's, that's not usually how it works. Okay. Some are very zealous in their unbelief, and, and you know, they're, ready, they're ready to throw down, they're ready to have, to, to have a war of words at least with you. But, but by and large, when you, when you are walking with God, when you are obeying Jesus Christ, you are able to be a blessing to even the unbeliever, and the unbeliever will recognize that. Hey, when this person's around, they, they, they work hard. There is a grace to them. They, they're, willing, they're willing to listen. They're interested in what I have to say. Even little simple things like that. It's what we call being winsome, right? You're winning, you're winning people over. You are able to even articulate the truth of the gospel to them. And in some cases, they're willing to listen. In the best case, they even repent and believe the gospel. So in that sense, even, even relationally, Yes, we, we want to be a blessing when we are around unbelievers. We don't want to be odious to them. We don't want to be obnoxious. We don't want to be, as we are, said, as we are told, that guy who's always looking for a fight. In another sense, it's this way. So look at the verse again. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So if you prove, what is, if you prove zealous for what is good, there is no ultimate eternal harm. Why? Because we understand that we, that we are in grace. We stand under the grace of God, but he is for us and not against us. So the question we are asking in these terms is, what can man do to me? Man cannot ultimately bring 
eternal harm on my soul. I cannot forfeit my soul. Man does not have that power. Whether I look to the one to whom my soul belongs and understand that if, I, if my life prove, proves to be zealous for what is good, I am assured that there is ultimately no eternal harm to be suffered on the hands of, by the hand of God. Because I am under his grace. I am under his authority. I'm under his favor. So that is why we want to prove zealous for what is good. Now note what he says here in this zeal, this zeal for goodness. It says, if you prove zealous for what is good. Now Peter is not just talking about a general goodness that is put on display. It's not something that is, is, is generally speaking about, oh, when the opportunity comes, I will, I will do something good. I will, I will preach the gospel. I will show Christ's likeness. See, and the, to be zealous for what is good is the difference between taking advantage of opportunities and creating opportunities. One that is zealous for what is good creates opportunities to serve others, whether that be a believer or an unbeliever. We are actively looking. We are on the search. We are creating instances where we can show love and goodness to those around us, to those people that the Lord has put in our lives. That's what it means to be zealous for what is good, to be passionate about it, to be committed to be one-minded toward it. And of course, for what is good. If you prove zealous for what is good, what is goodness? Remember, all of this is under the, the, uh, the definitions of what Scripture provides. So it's not goodness in a vague form. It's not goodness according to what society says or votes about what is good. It's good based on the revealed character of God. Now remember, last time we were in this text, we talked about goodness. In Exodus 34, when God's goodness passed before Moses, that is, goodness is the radiant quality of God's character and attributes. See? And this is why it's so important to have a solid view of what it means to be good, right? What is good? How do we know what good is? We know what good is by looking at God. How good is God? Well, God is so good, he shines. He shines so brightly, you can't really look at him face to face. That's how good God is. And I don't say that simply to overwhelm you by God's goodness. I say that so that we understand clearly the standard that we're dealing with here. We are dealing with a standard of goodness that is so beyond what man considers good that we have to come to grips with what Scripture's own testimony of goodness is. And until we know that, we're simply going to be following the pack. We're going to fall victim to what the unbelieving world sees as good. But we want to know what good is from God's point of view. That is all that matters. We cannot do the good. We cannot be zealous for the good until we know what the good is. And then we are called to be committed to that good, to be enthusiastic about it. And that enthusiasm should be fired by the, the inestimable weight of divine goodness. I mean, we hear all the time that, you know, America, our own country, our own beloved country is in moral freefall, continues on its own spiritual decline, that it is hopeless. And yet, here we have, even in our own time, God's people not only doing what is good, but being enthusiastically committed to the good. But I would say, 
How do we justify enthusiasm at all if we don't believe that God will come through on his promises? All the promises that I just mentioned about the advancement of his kingdom, about his grace going to the ends of the earth, about truth and justice prevailing. It's very hard to be enthusiastic about it if you believe it's all going to pot and there's nothing that the church can or will do about it. But if we believe in the, the promises of God, if we believe in the power of the gospel, we have every reason to be zealous for what is good and to know that that good is worth fighting for and that God has called people to himself whose lives as his Holy Spirit transforms them are characterized by grace, honesty, trustworthiness, generosity, kindness, and Christ-likeness. And this, and this word carries with it some baggage, zealous. We've all heard that word. We've all used that word, right? Zealots, right? We, zeal, being a zealot carries with it a pretty negative connotation. If you remember the first century, especially in Jewish politics, even during the time of Jesus, the zealots were a party of radically, uh, of radically committed Jews that desired a free Jewish state to cast off the yoke of the Roman Empire. And eventually their actions contributed to, uh, to, to not only Jerusalem being raised to the ground, but, but also the, the remaining Jews being holed up in the fortress of Masada. It didn't end well. So we typically say, okay, you see zealots, be aware of zealots. They typically have passion without any grounding. It's sort of seen as a, a naive kind of passion, a, a, a naive kind of commitment. When it came to the Jewish zealots, their activities included but were not limited to theft and even murder. Political assassination attempts were, a, were commonplace. Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke have their list of disciples, and one of the men on that list is Simon the Zealot. He was one of those men. He was a zealot. He wanted a free Jewish state. Perhaps he, we don't know, but perhaps he initially joined, joined Jesus because he thought, oh, the Messiah is here. He's going to join our cause and we're going to crush the Romans together. And yet after walking with Christ three years, he became zealous for the gospel and true spiritual freedom he was able to experience. Save us too, because I think we live, we live in a time with a lot of zealots. There is a lot of zealotry. I mean, why take up any cause, good or bad, if you can't be a zealot for it? I mean, people, people are passionate. We live, in, we live in passionate times. I don't look at a lot of the human race right now. I don't know what you do and think, wow, we just got a bunch of passive people out there. You know, like no one's really intense about everything. Man, it just seems like daily, especially if you're on, if you're on the internet a lot or if you're on Facebook a lot, get off of Facebook. Um, you're faced with this daily, just a barrage of all kinds of passionate assertions all kinds of would-be wisdom, everyone telling you what to believe and that if you, if you don't believe it, you're evil and you're misguided and you're stupid. See, nothing, no, no, nothing can be thought through. Nothing can be worked through, right? Let me, let me look at the details. No, 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 no. It's so obvious. How can you miss this? See, everyone is, oh. I mean, it's sometimes you just got to unplug and turn it off for a while because it's just overwhelming. And, and we, you know, quite frankly, we can't process it all. But 
but we live in such times as these. When you have a platform where you can talk to a bajillion people at once, oh man, you get really fired up. No one, no one listened to me before Facebook. Now I've got an opportunity to vent all my frustrations and to lavish upon the world my hidden wisdom and insight, right? There's a lot of people that think that way now, okay? And a lot of those people are not thinking in line with the authority of Scripture. But we live in an age, I believe, of zealotry. Sure, sure there are passive people. Sure, there are folks that, aren't, that, that, that see the world around them, and even though they have the truth, they're doing nothing because they think nothing really can be done. But on the flip side, you have many people who are just passionate, who have taken up their own cause, and we've already gone down that list of causes. We don't need to do that today. We simply need to acknowledge its presence, which, of course, prevails upon us the fact that we need to also prove zealous for what is good. Because many others, especially those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, will make that same claim. And sometimes being passionate is seen as good in and of itself. I mean, you can be passionate about something, guys, and be totally dead wrong about it. Why not be passionate? Why not be zealous for what is good? But how do we know what's good unless we look at God's word first? you want to be passionate about something, be passionate about the truth. Be passionate about those things that put God's perfect radiant character on display. Be passionate about that for starters and let everything else you're passionate about take a back seat, fall by the wayside because this, this is what is in view. This is the church's priority. This is what is going to subdue the nations. This is what is going to bring the hope of the gospel to bear on all mankind. That is the good, and the church needs to be palpably aware that we are letting so many different things overshadow that, and we need to repent from it. It's more than just being passionate. It's about being passionate for the truth, because once you step out of it, all, all you are is passionate about what destroys. Again, what good is it if what you're passionate about, what you're zealous for, opposes and exalts itself above God? What good is that? I think of Proverbs 8.36 where he says, all those who hate me love death. See, here's the thing. Many people who hate God would never admit it. Many people who hate God are unaware that they hate God. They give God some kind of lip service. They believe that he's exists, he exists, but mostly that he's largely uninvolved. He's kind of left it up to us, as it were, to make good choices and whatnot. But if you do not love the Lord, you hate him. And if you hate him, you love death. And if you are zealous... You are going to be zealous for what kills. You are going to be zealous for what destroys. That is what the church faces. So how much more should we be zealous for the good and to preach the gospel faithfully, to be functionally committed wholeheartedly to a righteous life, to a, a life of grace as the Holy Spirit calls us and empowers us? See, we pursue the good and we do that passionately and we do it consistently. That is, we do it regularly and always with God's word as our authority because that's what we've been called to. We read this in our scripture reading this morning. Listen to Titus 2.14. speaks of Jesus as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So those who belong to Christ, those whom he purchased, are to be marked, are to be characterized as those who are zealous and passionate for good deeds, to pursue the good, to do the good, to love 
the good, knowing that it's not something that is burdensome, not something that is done in a passive sort of way, but passionately and with great commitment and eagerness. So let's look at the next part of this text. It says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So we know ultimately no one, especially not God. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. So he says, even if you should, okay, this is going to happen. Again, no matter, no matter how zealous you are for good, no matter how zealous you are for righteousness, even if you are able to win the favor of the unbeliever, there is that chance that you will suffer for the sake of righteousness because some out there hate God's standard and expression of what righteousness is. So that could happen. So here's the first thing, unassailable hope. Uh, pursues what is good through suffering, and secondly, unassailable hope produces perseverance in suffering. So there's pursuing good, but there's also perseverance. There's also that, that attitude of endurance of suffering that Peter calls to mind, because in persecution, in affliction, doing good sounds great, but it's not easy. It can be hard can bring about unknown and unanticipated reprisals, but that's why Peter says, if this happens, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Persevere, endure. How is that manifested? He says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And then down to verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So in the case that we do, while committed to a life of goodness, while being zealous for it, we understand that does not exempt us from persecution. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, Paul tells Timothy. It is a fantasy to think that we can escape the world's displeasure by living lives of consistent godliness, by telling the truth, and by exposing that which is not truth. I mean, if you don't believe me, even think of Jesus. Think of Jesus, the most gracious man who walked the earth, the most humble and generous man, perfect, God in the flesh, our very standard for living, and yet as good and kind and benevolent and just as Jesus was, doing that without any selfish motives, without any sin, without any pride, complete rel completely relying upon God, he was nailed to a Roman cross. So if Jesus wasn't exempt from suffering, if the world couldn't get along with him, what makes us think that the world is going to desire to get along with us? In Matthew 10, 24 through 25, we read this, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Belzebul, and they did call that to Jesus, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So we will follow in the footsteps of our Savior in that sense, as well as in many others, but in that sense too. If, if Christ suffered, we will suffer along with Him. If we identify with the Lord Jesus, we will suffer with Him. It's part of being a Christian. No matter how good Jesus was, no matter how his, He worked miracles and preached the good news of the kingdom throughout His ministry, He was repeatedly accused and cursed of being one who dro drove out demons with the power of Satan. And in like manner, we will be accused of those things and worse. That's just part of being a believer. Part of being a believer means being rejected by those who are unbelievers. 
But Jesus gives his disciples this encouragement. And this goes along with what the text here in 1 Peter says. If this is the case, what does he say? Does he say, stop talking? Stop preaching the gospel? Maybe move on a little bit? You know, maybe tone it down? He says, no, if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. It's interesting how he doesn't give really any, we would, we would expect advice here or something, some kind of positive instruction. But he says, if, the, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, now you're blessed. Count yourself blessed. Just like what Jesus says in Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the son of man. So if it's for the sake of the Son of Man, it's not as if you're doing, doing anything wrong. I think that's a problem we might have, as if the world rejects it, that somehow we're doing something wrong, that we need to change our, our tone, that we need to make the gospel more palatable, more pleasing to the ear. We shouldn't be so forward. We shouldn't be so passionate about it. But no, you are blessed, Peter says. Jesus says you are blessed because you do this for the sake of the Son of Man. And remember what Son of Man points to. It points to the vindication of Christ and his declaration of being king and kings, king of kings and lord of lords. And we do that for his sake, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his gospel. And we are blessed. This could mean a couple of things. We understand typically the, the average notion of blessing and what it means to be blessed. So it means here that we are either beneficiaries of God's goodness, we are happy, satisfied, in our life in Him. And secondly, it's talking about the honor and privilege that is given by God to the believer. Now, I think although both may be in view here, I think the second one is probably the most prominent, considering the context. But this is honor and privilege that is given by God to the believer. Because what, when we are persecuted, do we receive? We receive dishonor. Okay? We lose our place in society often. We even, we're seeing it we're, that we're losing our voice. And if you're that beloved pastor, James, James Coates up in Canada, you've lost your building. You know, God bless that man. They couldn't, they couldn't shut him up. So what do they do? They block the road to the building where he preaches. And I guarantee you at some point, that effort to muzzle him is going to fall flat on its face because the preaching of the gospel can't be stopped. And what, and what demonstrates that is the fact that God's blessing is upon us, whether pastor or part of the flock. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not mistake persecution for being outside of God's favor, of being outside of God's honor, and that position to continue to do good. That's, the, that's one of the great lies we swallow today is that affliction and rejection just means not only that man doesn't like us, but it means that God does not approve of what we're doing. But to suffer for the sake of righteousness shows clearly that the opposite is true. You are blessed. And don't let anyone, especially not the unbeliever, tell you otherwise. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are honored. And the attitude toward that is obvious. In the book of Acts, when Peter and John are preaching and then they, you know, they get reprimanded by the local authorities, and when they're finally released, what do they do? Oh, Peter, I've been rethinking this, buddy. We should just keep our mouths shut. This is more trouble than it's worth. Oh, I know, John. Um, just too much. We're just, just too much aggravation. 
We're getting too much opposition from the crowds. They really don't like us. This whole gospel thing is not all that it's cracked up to be. They say, it says instead, they rejoiced, having been found worthy to suffer shame for the sake of the name. And we ought to as well. But you think about the transformation of heart that has to be in place there for someone to do that. No one likes suffering even for good causes, right? We have a great cause. We hate to see Christ's name dragged through the mud. We hate to see it rejected. I think that sometimes we squirm at the thought of confronting people with the gospel or even something like, you know, our Planned Parenthood ministry or even street preaching. Part of the reason that we, I think, hesitate is because we hate seeing the gospel rejected. We don't like that. We don't like seeing the name of Christ despised since it is a name that is lovely, that is worthy of honor, that is worthy to be proclaimed. But when we are, when we are put on the chopping block, as it were, when we are rejected, when we are despised and persecuted, we rejoice because God has found us worthy to suffer shame for the sake of the name, for preaching clearly the cross of Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean we're supposed to be gluttons for punishment. It doesn't mean we're supposed to be obnoxious. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to press in and be annoying or ungodly or try to have this sparring of words to try to prove that we're wiser. No, it's resting in the truth of God's word and telling the truth boldly and yet plainly. We're not looking for trouble. And yet often we find that trouble comes our way. Trouble comes looking for us. It's just part of living a life in Christ. But we're not to be discouraged. We are to be blessed. Just like Jesus says in Matthew 5.12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He also tells them for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those faithful men who, pro, who, who, who proclaimed repentance in the nation of Israel, who told them to turn back to God for he would abundantly pardon for his mercy would be on them. And yet they persecuted them too. It should be no difference, no different with us. We are blessed. And it says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Now what Peter's doing here, and you see the words in all caps, so he's quoting, he's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, from the book of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13, you also accompanying this, uh, 2 Kings 16 and 17, it's also in 2 Chronicles we read about a particular king. So we'll get to that. But in Isaiah chapter 8, he says that you are not to fear what they fear or to be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy and he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. So what Peter is doing is he's referring to a time in the kingdom of Judah's history in which the people were gripped by the fear of the, of the invasion of enemy forces. So on the throne of Judah at this time was a king named Ahaz. So he's ruler of Judah. And if you know anything about Judah's kings, you know that it wasn't great. They didn't have a lot of godly kings. And of course, Ahaz was no exception. He was anything but a godly man. The text describes him as doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Can you imagine your life being characterized by that? Would you like your life to be characterized by doing evil in the sight of the Lord? Like in his face, you knew God was watching you knew his law, and you did evil anyway. King Ahaz was a rare sort, evil though he was. He not only sacrificed to idols and served them, but he even made his sons pass through the fire. He sacrificed his sons to pagan gods as a burnt offering to the gods of Syria. 
So this is how far into idolatry the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have fallen. Remember, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And Ahaz is a poor, ungodly example of leadership in, in Judah. Sacrifices his sons, leads all Israel into idolatry. And this is how bad it's gotten. So what happens is that Assyria is about to invade the land and the kings of Israel and Syria go to King Ahaz, desiring to forge an alliance with him so that they can fight together against Assyria. And of course, this is exactly what the Lord warned them against, was being unequally yoked, forging alliances with foreign pagan nations who didn't serve the Lord. Don't forge these unholy alliances. And this is exactly what they're doing. Why, says the Lord? Because they will be a snare to you. It'll be a trap. You'll fall into their ungodliness. And here they are right in the thick of it. It's about as bad as it gets for them until they're sacked by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Turns out here though that Ahaz says, no, he's already forged an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria. So you have all these unholy alliances going on for the purposes of making war. And so Israel and Syria plan now to invade Judah. And here we see the great grace of God. We would ask, why doesn't God just let this king get his and get bulldozed by the enemy? And so what happens in this setting is that even in the middle of this great spiritual apostasy, Isaiah receives a word from the Lord to give to Judah. And he tells them, do not fear them. Fear the Lord. I am your fear. I am your dread. I am the one you are to revere and fear. See, so what's, what's the lesson here for, for the believer? For us, for the people to whom Peter is writing, do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled. And it helps when we look at it in its context in Isaiah. Don't fear them, don't be intimidated. Why? Fear me, he says. I shall be your fear, I shall be your dread. So what kind of fear is in view here with the Christian? We've already talked about fear just being the truth that, yeah, God can take you out. He's the ruler. Don't test him, right? Don't put the Lord to the test. But in, but in this context, this is a fear that clings. Because what, 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 what are the nations doing right now? They are clinging to one another. They are putting their hope and trust in one another, and the fear that the Lord reminds them here is it's a fear that clings to him. It's a fear and a dread that says, woe is me if I do not cling to the Lord my God. It's the same sense with the Christian. Don't be intimidated. Do not fear them. Fear the Lord. Do not fear those that can kill body but cannot kill the soul. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, only the Lord can do this. So we cling to him, right? That's the one thing the Christian should be afraid of, afraid of not clinging to the Lord who keeps us and who preserves us and who gives us strength to endure. So when he says, do not fear their intimidation, he's literally saying, do not fear their fear. There is a particular kind of fear the world will try to place upon us. And a lot of that is simply fear of rejection. You know, we've kind of made fun of that before. Oh no, the world's not going to like us. Big deal rather have the hatred of the world than the hatred of God. But this is it, this intimidation, reprisals, rejection, canceling. You know, we've even seen it in terms of what we call doxing. Person says something that goes against the narrative today, their address, their, all their contact information is made public to open the gateway to harassment. 
and threats. This is what's going on. But we are not to seek the approval of this world. And I, sometimes we, we, we get into this mindset where we think that the rejection of the world is a fate worse than death, to make the world liking us the be-all and end-all of Christian existence. But there is nothing higher and greater and fitting when it comes to the church that we endure and wait to see the world to come. We do not cling to a world doomed to pass away along with its lusts and desires. So Peter says this, fear the Lord, do not be troubled, do not fear their intimidation. So it's very clear, very clear instruction. He says, do not be troubled, last part of this verse. Do not be troubled, same thing. What this means is to be shaken or stirred up. We've come away from conversations. You know, we get confronted for what we believe, come away kind of shaking. Sometimes we get that spiritual fight, fight or flight. Should I say something back to them? Should I just keep my mouth shut? We wonder, right? He says, don't be shaken. Don't be, don't be stirred up. Don't let them live rent-free in your head, right? Christ dwells in us. Don't be shaken or stirred. When we encounter hostility toward the gospel, yes, there is a sense in which we can come away disturbed by what we've heard and to be troubled. But think about what Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 1. And this is a command, mind you, not an option. Let not your heart be troubled. Well, how do we not let our heart be troubled? Well, you read on in the passage and Jesus tells them how. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. So what is the remedy for being troubled? Is to continue trusting Christ and all that he provides. To cast all your cares on him, knowing that he cares for you, that he will preserve you through this. And that on the rare case that you lose your life, your soul is preserved because you belong to him. You don't have to be agitated. You don't have to be afraid. What we can do is trust in Christ and rest in him with the knowledge that even when the unbeliever gangs up on us, they can bring us no eternal harm. God is faithful, so do not be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Seek your solace first in the Lord. Share your burdens with those who belong to Christ. So those are the first couple of things. We'll have to end today, continue this next time. But just to remind you, characteristic, the first two characteristics of unassailable hope. One, unassailable hope pursues what is good in suffering. We always have a mind to do what is good, to never be phased by that, right? That is the consistency of the Christian life. In times good, in times hard, we commit ourselves to doing that which is good and that which puts the radiant character of the Lord Jesus Christ on display. Secondly, unassailable hope produces perseverance in suffering. How is that exemplified? By understanding that it is a good thing to suffer for the sake of righteousness, knowing that we are blessed by God even though we are rejected by men, and to not show fear, do not be intimidated, do not let your heart be troubled. So two very simple initial lessons today when it comes to standing firm in the true grace of God. And I think if we would commit ourselves to applying these things, we would be much more effective believers in this world. So much of where the church falls short today has to do with being intimidated, with fearing the mob, okay? with wondering what their reaction is going to be. Okay? And we're told here, don't fear them. Okay? And also, 
to be zealous, to be committed for, to what is good, to not be half-hearted, right? To not have one shoe out the door, but to be wholly committed and zealous to putting Christ on display. So as my challenge to you this morning, to commit yourselves to that end and to pray that as we do commit ourselves to that, that God truly would be glorified in his church and that we would be able to joyfully witness his kingdom go forward and to proclaim Christ as Lord readily with eagerness and with great boldness, knowing for sure that it overcomes all opposition. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this word to us this morning. We, we pray that we would truly take it to heart, that we would love you, that we would fear you in such a way that we cling to you, Lord. And we can cling to you knowing that you have us safely in the palm of your hand and that no enemy, no matter how seemingly mighty, will be able to snatch us out of it. Lord, help us to be a light in this world. Help us to be gracious, merciful. Help our commitment to goodness be such that, that even unbelievers find that attractive, that, can, that, that see us as a, as a blessed presence, that even in that um, realization that we could lead them to saving faith in Christ, that we would be gracious, we would be patient, we would be winsome, and that we would uh, ultimately be able to bring your gospel to bear. Lord, we do pray. We do pray for those who are in unbelief. Um, we do pray for those who don't know you. We do pray for those who, in ignorance, push all manner of false gospels, all manner of worldly hope that simply, that simply takes us farther away from, from you. And Lord, you have created us, you've created man to, to dwell with you, to delight in you, to enjoy your holy presence. And that's what we as believers are able to do. And, and uh, how could we be intimidated, know that we possess such a great salvation? Pray, Lord, for renewed confidence in you, renewed courage, renewed resolve, strengthening of faith, a willingness to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Again, all that is consistent with your character, not a phony kind of righteousness, but a righteousness that is found in Christ alone, that that is most worthy to suffer for. Lord, I pray that you would continue to equip this church to make a difference in this town, that we would... Uh, not only worship here with gladness of heart, but with an equal eagerness, go and reach the lost. You are a saving God. And even though we expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, we expose the unbeliever and his unbelief, we do not leave him hanging. We are committed to his good. And his greatest good is that he comes to a saving knowledge of your son. And I pray that we would not be merely talkers, uh, but doers of the word who are faithful to you. So please, God, energize us to this task to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.